0: Hello listeners, thanks for tuning in. I'm hopeful you are all well. Before we get started, this episode deals with death, specifically the deaths of school children. While not explicit, the subject matter can be a bit heavy, so please consider this before listening any further. And now, 20 minutes. If the fire had started just 20 minutes after first being discovered, the children would have been out of school. Just 20 minutes later, one of the worst tragedies in Chicago's history may have never occurred. Saving hundreds of families the pain of losing someone close to them. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Coinciding with the massive European immigration into America's big cities like Chicago in the late 1800s, Our Lady of the Angels was chartered as a parish in 1894, about five miles west of downtown Chicago. For the first few years, services at OLA, as it would become known, were conducted in a store building. In 1900, the first church building was erected on the northwest corner of Iowa Street and Hamlin Avenue, and in 1903, a parish school was built just to the west of the church on the northeast corner of Iowa and Avers Avenue. By 1939, a new church and rectory were in the works. These two new buildings, at a cost of $220,000, that's about $4.1 million in today's money, accommodate the growing parish. The Italian Romanesque church was designed to seat more than 11,000 parishioners. As it was the way things were done at the time, the two-and-a-half-story school was built of brick and a wood-timber-joist frame. The basement of the building extended above ground, putting the second-floor windows 25 feet above the ground. The interior was wood and plaster with wood trim throughout with beautifully varnished hardwood floors. While fire doors were in place on the first floor, the second floor stairway landings were open. Now, Chicago's municipal code of 1949 required that all new school buildings be constructed of non-combustible materials and utilize enclosed stairways and fire doors. This municipal code, however, was not retroactive, so existing buildings did not have to comply. There was no sprinkler system in place at Our Lady of the Angels. All that kept the building and its occupants from tragedy was the first floor fire doors, a number of pressurized water fire extinguishers, and a local fire alarm that when triggered would ring inside the school but did not send a signal to the fire department. Back in the 1950s, Our Lady of the Angels was one of the largest in the Chicago Archdiocese, with 4,500 registered families covering 150 blocks. Early in the parish's history, the neighborhood was primarily Irish, but as many neighborhoods do over the years, it began to change, and by 1958 it had become 60% Italian and 30% Irish. The remaining 10% was Polish and other Eastern European immigrants. The newly constructed main building at Our Lady of Angels School had 24 classrooms with high ceilings. The rooms were illuminated by hanging round electric globe lights. Doors in the classrooms were six and a half feet tall with 18-inch high inward opening glass transoms over the doors. The school was heated by radiators fueled by a coal-burning boiler located in the basement of the North Wing, with the coal supply for the boiler kept in an adjacent room. The main building had six exits, with one lone fire escape at the rear of the annex. Students at Our Lady of the Angels were taught primarily by nuns from the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, devoted to prayer and teaching, they were also known for their concern about fire, a concern that started 88 years before in 1870 when their mother house in Dubuque, Iowa, burned to the ground. Since that loss, the members of the Blessed Virgin Mary Order offer daily prayers that they and their students be spared from fire. Chicago in 1958 had the protection of 126 engine companies, 59 hook and ladder companies, and 13 rescue squads. All were divided into 30 battalions and 6 divisions. These units were manned by up to 6 firefighters, and each was responsible for covering its own district. OLA was covered by Engine Company 85, a company that didn't see many fires and was on the low end of activity. In the 1950s, Catholic elementary schools were bursting at the seams, and it was not uncommon for some classrooms to be crammed with 50 or 60 students. In the fall of 1958, enrollment at Our Lady of the Angels was 1,668 students, ranging from kindergarten through eighth grade. 200 of those students, once in kindergarten and first grade, were taught in separate buildings around the corner on Hamlin. If you take overcrowded classrooms in wood and plaster interior buildings with substandard fire prevention, you have a recipe for disaster. On Sunday, November 30th, 1958, the Bears lost to the Steelers 24-10 in Pittsburgh. Chicago's temperature dipped below zero, the coldest of the season to that point. Monday, December 1st, 1958, was to be warmer with temperatures in the 30s. The Tampa Tribune of Tampa, Florida, would later carry the story of nine-year-old Margaret Chambers, who stayed home that Monday morning with a cold, according to Margaret's mother. Margaret complained about being home as she didn't want to miss school. Her mother finally relented and let her go to afternoon classes. Another student, Linda Malinsky, age 10, reportedly dreamed of a fire the night before, telling her mother, quote, I hear people screaming, end quote. Linda also woke that Monday morning with a bit of a cold. She, too, asked if she could go to school to join her classmates after lunch as she was feeling better. According to the book, To Sleep with the Angels, Linda asked, Mommy, does my hair look all right? Her mother smiled at Linda and responded, You look like an angel. The school day that Monday was uneventful for most of the day. After recess, the students returned to their classrooms for their final two hours of studies. Sometime after 2:20 p.m., Pearl Tristano, the 24-year-old lay teacher in room 206, assigned two boys in her class the daily task of bringing the waste baskets from the room to the boiler room in the basement. They were to empty the trash into large metal bins so the janitor could later burn it in the outside incinerator. They performed their task and returned to the classroom. What those two boys could not have known is while they were in the basement beyond a door steps from where they were emptying their waste baskets a fire in a cardboard trash drum had started to burn That fire quickly consumed the trash in its drum and began to smolder The heat in the area began to rise causing a window to burst and a fresh influx of oxygen to give the fire new life the empty stairwell made of plaster and wood quickly became a chimney the closed fire door on the first floor kept the blaze at bay causing it to roar upward feeding off the wood plaster varnished hardwood floors and melting asphalt tile covering the stairs. While this was happening, hot gases from the fire entered a pipe shaft in the basement stairwell and shot upward into a space between the ceiling and the roof of the school, directly above six classrooms packed with 329 students and six nuns. The fire was blazing out of control, and no one was aware of all the danger around them. Two teachers thought the building seemed warmer than usual, but assumed the janitor may have overstoked the furnace. The first to notice something was wrong was a janitor named Jim Raymond, who was walking west on Iowa Street after completing a job at a nearby parish property. Seeing a wisp of smoke near the building's northeast corner, he hurried to the boiler room. Seeing a red glow coming from a window near the back stairwell, He ran through a door leading to the boiler room. By then, the fire was too great for Raymond to battle by himself. Raymond found two boys from room 205 emptying wastebaskets. The boys were also unaware of the fire raging nearby. Raymond yelled to them, Go call the fire department! The boys and Raymond raced out. Raymond went to the rectory next door and found a housekeeper preparing sauce for the evening meal. Raymond shouted to her. Call the fire department. The school's on fire. Raymond headed back into the burning school. Among the students there that day were four of his own children. Elmer Barkhaus, a 61-year-old part owner of a glue company, was driving south on Avers Avenue when he saw smoke coming out of the rear stairwell door at Our Lady of the Angels School pulled to the curb to look for a fire alarm box. It would later come out the nearest fire alarm box was one block east and one block south of the school at Chicago and Hamlin Avenues. Not finding one, Barkhouse ran into the candy store across the street, asking Barbara Glowacki, the woman behind the counter, if she had a phone. Although she had one in back, she did not like strangers to use it, so she responded, no, I don't have a public telephone. Barkovs headed back out the door, but before leaving, exclaimed, the school next door is on fire. He ran across the street and began ringing the buzzers of apartments, hopeful he might find a phone. The candy store owner was curious. She walked outside, and at first glance, everything seemed normal. A few steps closer, she saw it. A bright orange flame was pulsing over the transom of the back stairwell door. She could hear no fire alarm, then realized the sickening truth. The students and staff in the school did not know of the danger around them. Kloacki raced back into her store to her phone, but couldn't remember the seven-digit number. This was ten years before 911 was put into use. So she called the operator, asking for the firemen. Once connected, she said, quote, Our Lady of the Angels is on fire. Hurry, end quote. The fire alarm operator responded with a calm and reassuring, Somebody called in already. Help is on the way. Back in room 206, a boy named Frankie Grimaldi asked his teacher, Ms. Tristano, if he may go to the washroom. Ms. Tristano said yes, but once in the hallway, Frankie noticed the smoke. Ms. Tristano noticed too and ordered him back in the classroom. The teacher walked next door to room 205 to alert Dorothy Coughlin, that room's lay teacher. There was a strict rule that only the mother superior, the school's principal, was permitted to ring the fire alarm. Not sure what to do, Dorothy Coughlin headed to the principal's office on the second floor only to find that the mother superior was substituting on the first floor for a sick teacher. Returning to her classroom hallway, Coughlin noticed the smoke had gotten thicker. The two teachers decided not to wait for the alarm and instead decided to evacuate their classes. They lined up their students in fire drill formation and led them down a set of stairs in the south wing to the first floor. At the bottom of the stairs, Tristano flipped the switch on the wall-mounted fire alarm located there, but nothing happened. Exiting the building, Coughlin yelled to Tristano, quote, Take them to the church. I'm going to the convent. I'm calling the fire department, end quote. Tristano got the two classes of kids into the parish church next door, then returned to the school and the fire alarm. The fire alarm was nearly six feet off the ground and was more like a light switch. As Tristano flipped it a second time, the alarm began to sound in the school. It was now 2.42 p.m. It had only been a few minutes since the fire department operator assured candy store owner Barbara Glowacki that help was on the way, but outside the single flame Glowacki saw had morphed into a raging inferno. The windows on the second floor were open with dozens of terrified children crying out for help gasping for breath. Black smoke poured out over their heads. Children called out to Glowacki, Get me out of here. Help me. Sister Mary Serafika was also leaning out the window of room 210, pleading with Kloacki to call the fire department. Kloaki responded, Hold on, sister. Help is on the way. The fire department is on the way. Barbara Glowacki, I should add, had a daughter, Helena, who was in the second grade on the first floor. Kloaki raced around the corner to see a nun bringing a frightened group of students out of the building. The nun was calm, thinking that everybody had also made it outside. Returning to the alley side, Glowacki was greeted with a horrible sight. Children began jumping from the windows, landing 25 feet below on the surface made of concrete and crushed rock. With the blaze engulfing the building, the moments between Glowacki's call to the fire department and now seemed like forever. As children landed on the pavement, Glowacki saw some had burns, a few students got up and staggered away, but some were motionless, not making a sound. Some had visibly broken arms and broken legs. Kloacki knew it was wrong to move the injured, but she feared those on the ground would be in the path of more falling students. She began to move students out of the way, noticing that some of their clothes were smoldering. The skin on their faces was blistering and swelling. She brought some of the children who could walk to her store to get them out of the cold. She handed her rosary to one girl and said, Pray for the children. Neighbors, gradually becoming aware of the fire at the school and not seeing a fire department arriving, began taking their own ladders from garages and basements to the school to try to help, but most were too short to reach the children on the second floor. Although fire department personnel arrived in the area within four minutes of being called, the fire itself had burned long before that. Rescue efforts were also hampered. By an initial call to the fire department claiming the fire was at 3808 Iowa, which was the rectory address. The school was around the corner, a half a block away. The nearest fire companies, Engine 85, Hook and Ladder 35, Rescue Squad 6, and 18th Battalion Chief, were all due to respond. More trucks and squads were soon dispatched to 3808 Iowa, the rectory, not the school. Once firefighters realized they were at the wrong address and made it to the school, they saw a throng of students, parents, teachers, and neighbors all doing what they could to get help or provide help. As the firemen clamored to reach the building, more children jumped or were pushed by panicked classmates to the ground below. More than 200 firemen from around the city eventually arrived to help, doing all they could to rescue as many as they could. But for some by then, it was too late. Many of those who died were untouched by the fire, but were overcome by smoke inhalation. Chicago Fire Commissioner Robert Quinn said of the fire, quote, It was the worst thing I have ever seen or ever will see, end quote. The four children of Jim Raymond, the janitor who was the first to notice the fire, all made it out alive. Margaret Chambers, the young girl who stayed home that fateful morning with a cold, but complained until her mother let her go to school, was one of those found in room 210. Linda Belinsky, who dreamt of a fire, perished in room 212. The official count of those who died as a result of the Our Lady of the Angels fire, is 92 children, and three nuns. The final fatality was recorded in August of 1959 when William Eddington, an eighth grader who spent eight months in the hospital, passed away. The events at Our Lady of the Angels led to revisions in Chicago's fire codes, which encompass the brightness of exit signs and the types of furnaces that can be used in school buildings. In the years following the fire, dozens of lawsuits were filed against the Archdiocese of Chicago, calling financial settlements, quote, a moral obligation of the Archdiocese, Archbishop John P. Cody announced on September 8, 1965, nearly seven years after the tragedy, that the Archdiocese would pay out a total of $3 million, nearly $25 million in today's money, to the families of the 92 killed in the blaze and 76 people injured. Families of the dead received $7,500, about $62,000 in today's money. Settlements for the injured ranged from $250 to $350,000. The exact cause of the fire has never been officially ruled as conclusive. In 1962, a 13-year-old boy charged with starting a number of fires in nearby Cicero confessed to starting the Our Lady of the Angel's. Fire while he was a fifth grade student there, but the judge concluded the evidence was insufficient to substantiate the confession. A new school was built, opening in 1960, but the neighborhood was never the same. Many heartbroken families moved away, and the parish was affected by blockbusting and discriminatory hiring practices for those who moved into the area in the 1970s. Church attendance began to slowly erode. By 1990, the Our Lady of the Angels Parish closed with remaining parishioners becoming members of St. Francis of Assisi Parish at Costner and Augusta. In 1999, due to dwindling attendance, the school closed as a Catholic school. The Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary left Our Lady of the Angels at that time as well. At the Queen of Heaven Cemetery in suburban hillside, Illinois, is the Shrine of the Holy Innocents, a memorial dedicated to the victims of the Our Lady of the Angels' Fire. It lists all 95 victims' names. Much of the information compiled for this episode is from not only news reports from back in the day, but also the book To Sleep with the Angels, written by David Cohen, and John Kunster, the definitive look at this event. It is not an upbeat read, but I highly recommend it. I will have a link to it in the show's notes. Thank you for listening to today's episode about the Our Lady of the Angels tragedy. If you have a question about anything covered today, anything to add or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, please send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at JKS on Instagram, or via email at angeleyesartjks at com. Take a moment this week to tell a friend about the Chicago History Podcast. We would love to reach new listeners and fans of Chicago history. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe.